Hello, I'm Alex Mozed. You're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Try to make sense about what's actually going on here. Um, so today we're going to jump right in. And we've got a little video here. Jeremy Schwartz, who is Wisdom Tree's head of research, uh, went on Bloomberg yesterday. And one of the things he spoke about was Plat, the, the ETF that includes platform businesses. Modern platforms, digital marketplaces. Uh, so it tracks things like Twitter, eBay, but also the London Stock Exchange. So anything people are sort of moving across on the Internet on. Um, you're going to be overweight tech and communications, obviously. Let's look at the tail of the tape here. These aren't the best products to, comp uh, to compare it to, but if you look something like ARC or uh, FDN, you can see some similarities there. I think the non-US exposure here, you get more uh, international in this one, um, and you're gonna have the similar market cap weighted. So it's like one of these, but it's very different as well. Now, I wanna introduce this new function, Drive Go, which just came out, which is perfect to use on this. It goes next level and shows you other things that the ETF is exposed to. So for example, the stocks, in this ETF are, are very much have positive sales surprises. That's a tailwind, that's good obviously. A lot of cash, a uh, lot of um, ROE, but you're gonna be a lot of dispersion on what sell side thinks, that's a headwind. A lot of volatility and the dividends, you get no dividends here. So this is gonna show you the different ways to look at the ETF. So, but beyond that, as we all know, what's really gonna jumpstart this is, is whether it performs well or not. Of course, it always comes back to that. Now, still with us is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. So, Jeremy, when I looked at the fund and what it contained, it seems like it was e-commerce, e-payments with some exchanges thrown in there for good measure. I mean, it is really trying to be, if you think about how is business transforming, you hear a lot about this asset light where you don't own the production, you own the means of connection. And when you think about, as, as you guys gave in the lead, growth, how do you find growth? And it, all the smart beta factors that focus on value, and even Wisdom Tree got to start focusing on value. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're saying, how do we get more growth exposure? Is there a business model that's changing the industry? And these platform models from Uber and Lyft and these asset light seems to be a growth story that you can get around. And they're growing earnings and sales. Like the sales is three to four times faster than the standard S&P 500 companies. And their margins, whereas the standard margin, gross margins are 30% on S&P 500 company, these are in the 60s. So there's a really good business case that this is the future of a lot of business and mm. that these are growing faster with better margins. So it's a pretty distinct theme and Wisdom Tree is not exactly a firm that's known to be a thematic ETF issuer. They have Plat, they also have one that deals with cloud computing. So you kind of get the gist of it, right? I mean, I think what, what Jeremy was getting at there was talking about um, growth, higher margins, makes sense uh, that these you know, very often, if you look at any kind of marketplace business, um, there's GMV and then there's revenue and GMV doesn't fall into your traditional P&L. So the revenue is that take rate. If they're taking 10, 15, 20, 25 percent off of the GMV, that's revenue. So your your cogs against that revenue are relatively relatively very minimal. Um, that's why you see such high gross margin, as Jeremy was mentioning. On the other side of that, if you're not a marketplace, you're probably a content platform or a platform that has a lot of advertising revenue. Same kind of story, right? If you're a content platform, uh, you're a social media platform, your inventory is basically nothing, right? Your inventory is, I have like a newsfeed of some sort, and I'm just going to magically now slot in ads um, that I can charge for. So what's the cog against uh, making up literally some pixels 
and putting that into your newsfeed and selling content against that ad slot, right? So um, I think the, the, the big thing here is um, long-term. And that's why Wisdom Tree went and put together really one of these kind of first growth-oriented thematic ETFs where, as Jeremy mentioned, historically, they've been very value-focused, right? So, but if you think conceptually and say, hey, over the long term, do I think that uh, the power structure in these industries where platforms are now rising and gaining dominance, is, is that power and that value going to draw more towards the one or two dominant platform businesses? Or will it remain in the hands of the linear incumbent enterprises? Now, we've seen examples where the winner-take-all dynamic is not as strong. There maybe aren't just one or two winners. We we spoke about that yesterday, looking at the real estate industry. Or we've spoken in the past about car marketplaces, right? Where these are more infrequent purchases on the demand side. Those network effects are a little bit harder to lock in and consolidate and have as strong of a winner-take-all dynamic as a result. I'd say you see a lot of those as being somewhat older marketplaces. That's kind of like that marketplace 1.0 model, kind of like um, an Angie's List where you or, or you might be kind of or like a like a lending tree where you are kind of like a referral engine but you don't really own the transaction from consumer to producer. Now, the basket of socks does not differentiate between, hey, do you have a marketplace 2.0 business or a marketplace 1.0 business? All the basket of socks is saying, conceptually, do I think these businesses as a whole will outperform or not? Um, and that's really kind of the, the thesis. If you wanted to, and if you go to uh, Wisdom Tree's page, on the ETF, you can actually see every stock um, that is that is in this basket. There's 70 of them. And you could be the judge if you wanted to cherry pick and, and pick certain ones for yourself um, based on where you think things are going and and have at it. But I think, uh, you know, conceptually, this this has never been done before. And that's one of the things Jeremy was trying to get, get across is no one has really said, these are this new type of business model, and we're going to identify them in a quantitative, objective manner put them into this basket and then allow that to be a kind of thematic investment strategy. So I think, I think Jeremy did a pretty good job. Interesting here, Walmart, uh, this just came out. Walmart's U S president, Greg Foran, uh, is leaving and they have a, a, a replacement plan. Uh, he's leaving November 1st. Okay. Sounds like the guy just gave his notice in the past week. And he's out of there. Now, um, if you remember, I think back in August, we uh, had a video where we were talking about this story where Greg and other people in the, in the U.S. business for Walmart were complaining and kind of throwing shade on Mark's team, the U.S. e-commerce business, and that there was friction there. And it didn't seem... I mean, it was clear that the sources for this article were from Greg's team and not necessarily Mark's team. Or, or if Mark's team did talk to the reporter, it was as a result that these reporters had gotten information from Greg's team. So you could kind of feel that there was tension there. 
one of the things that we noted was that the e-commerce business had a billion dollars in losses annually, and that was being absorbed onto Greg's P&L. And it seemed like Greg's P&L and his profit needs to be profitable. Uh, that's the traditional business. That was part of his compensation. So look, I mean, these guys, any executive at Walmart's making a lot of money in these kinds of things. And culturally, there was some troubles there. I just tend to go back to the money on this. I don't know. I wonder if 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 Greg's pay, if if there was any kind of, uh, you know, way that that Walmart could have just provided a little bit more of a buffer or or made that or hold Greg, I guess, less accountable. You know, Greg was looking at what Mark had to be accountable for and Mark is losing all this money, but I need to have a profitable business and I'm comped on profits and my team presumably is also comped on profits. And hey, this isn't fair. If you take that, if you make the money copacetic, that can clear up a lot of these things. So I don't know if that happened or not. None of that has come out or been disclosed, but if it um, did not happen, then I would say that seems like a missed opportunity, but it's pure conjecture at this point. We predicted also every other week we would see a, a big retail bankruptcy. This is not a big retail bankruptcy, but it's definitely a warning signal. Uh, Victoria's Secret is trimming down their headquarters staff and the head of stores is stepping down. She has been there for more than 16 years. A reason for her resignation couldn't immediately be determined. That's not a good sign. What that's probably a sign of is that, well, A, things aren't going so well with the stores. B, they're trimming down the staff. C, what has not been disclosed, which I bet will be happening soon enough, is that uh, there will need to be store closures beyond whatever is currently been disclosed. I don't know if they've already disclosed that they're going to be closing stores or not. Um, but this is the trend, right? We just, we've seen now retailer after retailer, we've shown you the stats about how much, just too much real uh, retail real estate there exists in the United States. And you just don't need it that much. And uh, now what is, what is slowed down? I think the debt has actually, you know, the debt, I think, has now been the the main reason why they're not able to just keep this cycle going and that they're needing to do these store closures. So uh, it's kind of interesting there. So let's see. I've got a couple videos here. This video is from Complex, uh, which means they like to... Uh, it, it's definitely not a PG rating in terms of language. Some of it's funny. Some of it's just kind of dumb. But anyway, they interview the uh, CEO of jo the CEO of StockX, Josh Luber, and I won't show you all of all of the video and and all of the background. But basically, the background is this: that there have been rumors, um, or not rumors. There have been other videos, articles written from from resellers. So these are the people that basically were reselling sneakers before marketplaces like StockX and Goat and um, Flight Club, which Goat now owns and so and Stadium Goods, you know, there's a lot of players now in the space. 
And before those marketplaces really came into existence, you had humans that did this. They would get access to the uh, exclusive sneaker inventory, and then they would resell it and make a nice markup. Well, you could imagine that those resellers' businesses haven't necessarily been doing as well when you have a marketplace that pretty much directly competes with them. So now a lot of resellers, just as a result of dominant marketplace, have to use the marketplace and have to sell onto the marketplace. And basically what's been happening over the past, I'd say, year or so, is there have been more and more reports coming out uh, from resellers primarily saying, hey, I sold fake stuff on StockX. One guy came out and said, I, hold, I sold 100 of these Travis Scott sneakers and um, all of them were fake, but he did this to prove a point and 88% of them were accepted. And he posted photos of the 88% accepted that he, I think each sneaker is like a thousand dollars. So he had over a hundred thousand dollars in sales and, you know, posted all of that to, uh, to the interwebs. And anyway, um, so now Complex is interviewing the CEO of StockX, and there's a couple interesting minutes here that I'll play for you where they actually start to get to, I think, the meatiest part of this interview, um, which I'm going to play. You go buy a share of Nike stock on the New York Stock Exchange, there's one ticker symbol for Nike, and every bid and every ask happens at that one place, and so there's one price for Nike. But what about like the people who are like getting fake sneakers from StockX and stuff like that, those things hurt bro i don't know if it's fake news or rumors because i've never been to the to the stockhouse warehouse i come by but the culture has to feel bro that you actually care about it thank you for bringing this up this is one of those things that and like the the conversation at the event in new york i can't have the discussion on twitter in sure. 140 characters to do yeah, this, right it's a conversation what percentage of the shoes right. that go through StockX are fake what what's your your success rate ratio on verifying shoes those are are, are two different things so um, our success rate in our operation facility is, and this is a real number, is 99.85%, which sounds really great, right? But we process about 20,000 pairs of shoes a day mm -hmm. that go Have through you seen that. The okay, there's a more here, but it just seems like a really good number. 99.85. It seems really good. Okay, let's listen to some more. You seen the horror story on Nike Talk? There's a kid on Nike Talk yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. he worked there for one day. He cried. He went home uh -huh. in tears. People had to authenticate 55 pairs of shoes in an hour. They you played shitty music all day, and the only good song they played was uh, Rough Riders Anthem. Yeah, he called it modern day slavery. He called it a sneaker plantation. That person like thought they were gonna go and get to like hang out and like just hang out with sneakers all day. Mm. And by the way, 55 that, pairs that, in that an hour also... is that right? You have to authenticate 55 pairs in an hour. There's not a hard uh, uh, number like that. Okay, it, it, it's that's a good question. Who you are because there's different levels of seniority, what shoes you're doing, what products you're doing, yeah. where you're at. It is true that a single sneaker authenticator can see 500 pairs in a day. That's not, that's not crazy. But aren't you setting yourself up for failure that by doing crazy. that? We absolutely have made mistakes. But you think, do you think StockX sends out the most fakes no. out of all companies that are sending out no. shoes? No, no Not way. more than eBay. No way more no than way. eBay. But First of all, let me just okay. clarify. 99.85%, okay. by the way, is yeah. everything. That's not just fakes. That's It could be wrong Watches, size. All no, no, but it could be wrong size. It could be a damaged oh. box, a manufacturing defect. Anything, any reason why this shouldn't have gone out. Okay. Because, listen, it's still a human being at the end of that that is, that is doing that. And all day listening mistakes. to Rough Riders Anthem. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and like humans make mistakes and those things happen, right? Here but, we go, shut them down, open up shop. <laughs> oh no. But a they should put you on the remix, bro. A lot of that, a lot of those that you've seen on there are people that are trying to basically blackmail us with social media. Mm. That happens all the time, right? right? Or just troll. Some okay, of them are okay, legit, right? right? We have 75 people in our customer service team Right, that that manage that. And by the way, if we there's make one other good question, I'm 100% waiting for. 100% own it. We take it back. We make those people right. I've never heard the level of stories about fakes from Flight Club or Stadium Goods that I have about StockX. Yep. We we are our stories. I've never seen those stories. Because yeah, I've never heard of fakes coming from Flight Club. That's just I'm just being honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I've never got. I bought more shoes other than the fours from StockX, and they weren't fake. Thank God or whatever you know what I'm saying. So it's like I didn't even know that was possible. I you guys remember the, the question. Chain? I need him to answer the question. Right. How come I don't see more stuff about if if you're saying that you guys have a better success rate than Flight Club? How come I never see stories about fakes from Flight Club? So I, I don't know. I'm gonna guess a couple things. One, there it is, right? I don't know. Well, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. The easiest way to deflect that one would have been to say, well, we sell way more shoes than Flight Club or, you know, Stadium Goods. But that would have been a good way to throw some shade and kind of deflect. But um, I, this is the main crux of the kind of value that these marketplaces are bringing to consumers. And so one of my takeaways from this is that when you, when, when we say how there's an opportunity for, um, niche vertical specific marketplaces to be successful against the generalized overarching category winners like an Amazon or a Walmart, even to a certain degree eBay. This is a great example as to why those niche marketplaces can be successful is because they need to use technology and process and systems to to have a very different uh, what we would call kind of you know core transaction, right? So, from how you're matching from a consumer to a producer, how you are then verifying um, the legitimacy of the sneaker, storing that in the warehouse, fulfilling it, right? All of that is much more involved than what eBay is doing, for example, where it's just purely going from a seller to the buyer. There's no platform middleman that's actually trying to provide this service. And so if these stories are coming out saying that, hey, actually, all of that's really not true. Um, or even if it's 1%, ha you know, happening 1% of the time and you're spending 500 or $1,000 uh, on a pair of sneakers, I mean, that's a very big problem for them. And so where I see this all going and where you see the large marketplaces go eventually, right, is, is they get their start working with distributors. They get their start working with other, in this case, resellers. And eventually, once they get enough demand, they tend to try to leapfrog and go directly to the manufacturer. Uh, we've seen Amazon do that with Nike, but we see them do that with a whole variety of other manufacturers where they go directly to the brand. They go directly um, around the wholesaler or the reseller. I think in the, in the sneaker marketplace in this kind of secondhand resale marketplace, whoever, whichever marketplace is going to, uh, be able to m more closely integrate with the large manufacturers and particularly solve things around verification and weeding out fakes and having the most trust. I think in this industry, same thing would go for a far fetch, by the way. If, 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 if StockX is having this problem with sneakers, 
Can you imagine the amount, the, the problem that Farfetch is having, which is much bigger, which sells a whole variety of luxury goods? Um, so what kind of capabilities are the manufacturers providing to the platform? How is the platform able to uh, invest in technology to help solve this problem and, and, and kind of solve this problem in cooperation with the manufacturer? Whoever does that first or more aggressively or brands themselves better to do that with the consumer uh, is, is definitely going to have a big win. Oh, and by the way, the last snippet I'll show from this actually talks about their aspiration to do something uh, very similar to that, just, just for different reasons. Here's how it works. If there's 50 pairs of a black si size nine, okay. it's a blind auction. Everybody bids whatever they want to pay for it. You can't see anyone else's bids. The top 50 win. If the number one bid pay, bid $1,000, right? And the number 50 bid was $200. The top 50 win, but the 50th bid is called the clearing price. So everybody pays the clearing price. Even mm. the person that paid $1,000. This is, uh, is an interesting development, right? Where they're saying, hey, we're going to now go direct, go work with manufacturers or go work with brands that are now going to release the sneaker directly through StockX. They did this a couple of years ago with uh, these LeBron sneakers. Dan Gilbert's the owner of StockX. Dan Gilbert also owns the Cavs. And at the time, LeBron was with the Cavs. And so I haven't seen much news about this ever since then. This, this interview is from January of this year. Um, but anyway, they're, they're trying to get to the manufacturer. They're trying to get to the manufacturer, I think, just to have the inventory go to StockX first. So, you know, if you want that, that rare sneaker, um, StockX is going to have it before everyone else. There's value there. I would probably argue there's more value in um, just having the, the most secure verification and brand um, around having just not selling fake sneakers would probably be the biggest reason why I would want to go to the manufacturer. But uh, hey, that's just me. So you kind of see this where, you know who had this problem? PayPal had this problem, right? As PayPal started to get big, all the, the um, not necessarily fraudulent, but the kind of money laundering, right? So you have all of this kind of fraudulent supply, whether that's literally fake sneakers or money laundering supply going through the platform. And as the platform scales, how do you handle that? And um, what we're going to talk about tomorrow is the importance of supply and supply side network effects. And um, so, so put a note in that we're going to come back to that tomorrow, uh, but it's very, very important. So Instagram, similar story here, focusing on the supply. Why does this focus on supply? So this article says, look, Instagram is getting rid of the feature that let you see what everyone else was liking. So, um, yeah, I think this is the page. Yeah. So basically, you see these two tabs at the top, following and you. The, this following tab is now gone on Instagram. And there's, there's commentary about why they're doing this. Uh, you know, it, it, sh it showed people's activity. People didn't like it for kind of privacy reasons and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think the real reason why they took this down was because a lot of the big Instagram influencers who have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers would have stalkers. These stalkers could create accounts and all the account would do is just follow one person. And then you have this nice page called the following tab and the following tab 
let's say the only person you were following was Waffle Nugget. And let's say Waffle Nugget was an Instagram influencer. And let's say you're that stalker. Now, stalker has a beautiful feed of everything Waffle Nugget is doing on Instagram. That means if stalker wants to annoy said influencer, Waffle Nugget in this, in this case, um, that's very easy. You can now see who is this person interacting with? What are they doing? Whose photos are they liking? Who are they commenting on? Da, 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 right? And um, this actually was a very big nuisance. And, and if you're the influencer, what do you do? Ban this, this single account that's now harassing you? Okay, they're just going to create another one tomorrow and do the same thing. So I think this was probably a big reason why this feature went away um, because it was a real issue and it's, it's scary. Uh, if, if not saying this happened to me, I by no means in some big mega influencer with hundreds of thousands of followers and all this kind of stuff. Um, but it did happen. And, uh, and I think that's kind of the real reason which, which no one's really uh, pinning down right now. So, um, one other topic I'm going to sneak in here. There's an article here about how can automakers make money for mobility. Just real quickly, it talks about what the different automakers are doing and, and this kind of stuff. Um, here's the answer. So how can automakers make money for mobility? The answer is they can't. They're not going to make any money for mobility. Why are they not going to make any money for mobility? Why? Because they're stubborn and they don't want to partner with each other. You'll see one automaker partner with another. You'll see Daimler, which owns Mercedes, partner with BMW. And you've now seen Ford partner with Volkswagen. And you've, I guess those are kind of the major alliances. And the problem is you need critical mass. You need at least 20, 25, 30% of the connected vehicles on the road. If you ever want to be able to actually have some kind of material amount of inventory. So inventory in this, if you're building a development platform and you think about Android and iOS way back in the day, what did Android do? They went to literally all of the handset manufacturers, except for Apple, put them into an alliance called the Open Handset Alliance. And boom, I have millions of smartphones using Android. At that time, I think Windows was still around, but they had millions of devices, which means I had millions of consumers interested in potentially using apps from third-party developers. That's the other side of this mobility platform equation. You need third-party tech startups and developers and service providers, which we've spoken about in the past on the show, to participate. But here's the thing. The auto industry is still very fragmented. So even if you are a Volkswagen, a BMW, a Ford, at most you control maybe 7 or 8% of the market. Which means if two of you partner up, at most you have maybe 15% of the market. And then if you go to the supply side of the network and you try to convince the supply side of the network to build apps or to integrate on your connected services, they're going to say, um, no, it's not worth the effort because I don't want to have to integrate with six or seven other groups I want to integrate into one or maybe two. Three is a stretch and pretty much everyone's going to tell the third player, no, I'm not going to do it. It's really just one or two, particularly on development platforms where the integration effort and the switching costs are so much higher. So it's just much harder. So um, 
we have not seen an automaker take to heart this simple fact. The old competitors in the auto industry, automakers, are now an automaker's new allies. The new competitors in the auto industry are the large tech monopolies called Apple, Google, Amazon, throw Baidu in the ring, sure. And the only way you can try to beat the large tech monopolies is by partnering up with each other in mass, or at least you need at least three of these players, maybe four, to all come together, sing kumbaya, and agree that they're going to go in on some kind of mobility platform initiative, open up APIs, let developers build software, help them tap into the users and the customers driving across multiple manufacturers' brands. This article goes on to explain why Maven, which was GM's uh, GM's like car sharing platform, but you could only use GM vehicles, right? Like, you know, it just doesn't make sense. How is that going to beat Turo or get around, which you could use any vehicle, right? So what the traditional enterprises in this space, the automakers are struggling is that they have a lot of advantages in the sense that they do have, say, 8% market share. That value is not the be-all, end-all. That just doesn't magically make you a win. That helps give you initial supply. That helps jumpstart the platform, but it doesn't make you a winner. So if GM said, hey, we're going to contribute all of our GM vehicles into our Turo get-around uh, you know, car-sharing platform competitor, and we're going to seed it with a bunch of money, and I'm going to seed it with GM vehicles... Maybe they could go get another tier two OEM to partner up. Okay, that's a good starting point. Maybe they could beat a tech, a pure tech marketplace, Turo or Get Around, that is much farther along. But because GM is bringing all of these advantages and in inventory to the table, it gives them advantages or it gives them a leg up. It doesn't just now make that a winning strategy because clearly it failed and it's no longer around. So, the auto industry is probably one of the most frustrating industries I see in terms of, again, our constant battle, large tech monopolies, traditional incumbents. The traditional incumbents really do have so many advantages. Building a car is so much harder than a smartphone, but they just continue to mess this up. And I don't know, you know, well, I could go on and on and on forever about it. But um, the last point I'll make on this is how do the tech monopolies get the incumbents to work with the tech monopoly? They give them technology for free. What is the key Google app, right? Killer tech that Google's giving away? It's Waymo. It's autonomous driving. And uh, they are clearly ahead in autonomy than pretty much any other automaker. And so Google says, here, here's this technology. They give them this value and then they get access to the ecosystem. It's literally the most classic play in the playbook. This is like 101. You can see the script play itself out for the past 20 years and the next 20 years. The platform gives away the technology. The technology is a commodity. The power is in the ecosystem. And if Google, via Waymo and Android Automotive, which now they have in GM vehicles and which they have Honda and other uh, and Chrysler and other partners, do the math. Do they have 20 or 30% uh, market share once they have Android Automotive and all this stuff in the vehicle? Absolutely they do. Oh, and by the way, they only have millions of app developers 
ready, willing, and able to integrate on top of Android Automotive and bring all these connected services to the drivers of GM, Honda, uh, FCA, and so on and so forth. I mean, the writing's on the walls. The ship has already sailed, pretty much. It's just a matter, I think, of who's going to be the number two player. Because I think Google's pretty much got this dialed. Uh, and they're not going to mess it up. So, last topic here. There's a lot of stuff going on with China. The only thing I really want to highlight here is the power of platforms. So, in China's case, how are they using the Chinese tech platforms to basically silence the Hong Kong conversation and keep people in check? Um, and then I'm going to switch over to the US ones like Apple. But for Tencent, Tencent owns. Uh, stakes in Glue Mobile, which does a bunch of mobile games, Snapchat, uh, Blizzard, which we spoke about yesterday, Tesla. Um, they have a very lucrative streaming deal with the NBA with uh, apparently average viewership of around 3.7 million viewers per game in China. That's a lot of people. Oh, and they have an ownership stake in Reddit. And so when you just now look at this and you say all of these um stakes and this influence and now the control that the chinese communist government has and we've highlighted this multiple times in terms of now using this power both in china but now also abroad via the tech monopolies chinese tech monopolies like tencent it's just going on we can have debates in terms of what people should do or what's right or wrong all i wanted to do is kind of highlight the mechanisms at play and now I'm going to do that on the flip side. So what U.S. tech platforms uh, are in the limelight and what are they doing about this? Let's talk about Apple. Um, so Apple deleted uh, the Taiwanese flag emoji from the keyboard on Hong Kong iPhones. Right. So you yeah, see the different flags. China didn't like that there's a Thai, Taiwanese flag because Taiwan's supposed to be part of China. China threatened Apple. Apple removed the Taiwanese emoji from the keyboards. Now, um, there is an app that was made and it was approved on the App Store and it was used by Hong Kong protesters to track the movements of the police officers um, in Hong Kong. Apple banned the app because China was not happy about it. And then um, there was a lot of counter- just frustration with Apple doing this. And now they've unbanned the app. Um, but that's actually not the only thing that Apple has done to capitulate to the Chinese government. Um, Apple has handed over iCloud data and encryption keys to China. That was interesting. I thought they were never going to do that. They would not do that for the U.S. government. If you remember, like the FBI had to hack into the iPhone because Apple was not going to hand over this information. Uh, I think uh, Attorney General Barr has asked Apple to like postpone their encryption of certain things, or maybe that was Google. Um, but no, they're actually handing over iCloud data and encryption keys to China, exploiting iOS to track the Uyghurs, um, which are the uh, Chinese Muslim population in China that have come under a lot of scrutiny in China. Um, and they kind of minimi minimize the seriousness of this. So that's just Apple. Look, I mean, China's 
threatening these companies with, uh, I guess, banning all their products and, and these kinds of things. Um, Apple has a big market in China. And so it's just interesting when uh, you hear like Facebook. So Facebook was one company that you actually heard quite publicly that Zuckerberg um, did not want to go to China because let me see if I can find this. Uh, yeah. Okay. Here it is. Facebook takes a shot at Apple in China, says it won't store data in certain countries. This was from March of 2019. So in a long manifesto about Facebook's future, CEO, CEO Zuckerberg said the company is willing to be banned in countries that object to its new focus on privacy, specifically the emphasis on secure data storage. That might sink any chance of Facebook operating in China, but it might also let Facebook claim some moral high ground over one of its competitors, Apple. Uh, so this was a quote from Zuckerberg. I believe one of the most important decisions we'll make is where we'll build data centers and store people's sensitive data. Um, and, there, you know, there's a lot more on this topic. Now, compare that to in Apple's uh, recent keynote, you know, privacy uh, was a huge focus of it, right? Here. Star of WWDC wasn't the Mac Pro or dark mode. It was privacy. Sign in with Apple uh, could be the first step toward lockdown Apple authentication. Private and secure, right? It was, it was everywhere. So this kind of all goes back to one dynamic of platforms, which is this idea of instilling trust. And um, how do you quantify trust? How do you measure how important trust is to the consumer, to the supplier or the producer? And uh, clearly, Apple has put a lot of emphasis on this. And Facebook, I would say, if you were to kind of just do a general poll of people, I would say Facebook trust from a privacy standpoint in the U.S. is probably a lot lower than Apple's. But it's just very interesting when you look at the decisions from the company executives about where to open up what they understand in terms of the level of control, what it's going to mean from a moral standpoint, just how the company needs to operate if they want to operate in a market like China and who has gone ahead to actually go and operate there. And now you're kind of stuck because you've made the investment. Oh, and by the way, if Apple says, you know, goes up against China and wants to play hardball and China bans Apple products, do you know what's going to happen to China's, I mean, Apple stock price? Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. What's Facebook's exposure to all of this? Basically nothing. So um, it'll be interesting to see how this play out plays out, but it's um, it's also very interesting to kind of see. I don't know. I guess kind of like the truth from the uh, you know the kind of pomp or the marketing, and uh, and and these kinds of historical decisions made by U.S. tech platforms. Uh, I think probably speak to more of that moral fabric in the company um, about whether you're turning down money and not going into the Chinese market or you are going to go into the Chinese market and you're going to deal with the consequences. And now that's playing itself out. So uh, it'll be interesting to follow. Thanks for joining us today on Winner Take All. We will talk to you tomorrow.